Uh, Genesis 14, we've been uh, just working our way through Genesis. I wanted to do, I've already said this so many times, first 11 chapters, we spent a little bit of time on Abraham. Um, and then in the not-too-distant future, um, I've been asked about, and I think that it's worthy of some attention, I've been asked about our... Uh, our relationship with politics and our what our political activity ought to be. So we'll we'll turn our attention to that. <clears throat> but for now, we continue on with the life of Abraham, which very much has, and I th- I think we can take comfort from this, but we shouldn't use it as a benchmark. Has many ups and downs. Um, and this man who is held up to us as the template of faith, um, <clears throat> we, we find his, his faith sometimes um, acting not so well. Um, <clears throat> but this is not one of those moments. Um, and let's go ahead and pray and we'll turn our attention to the passage this morning. Father, uh, thank you for your word. And Father, help us to, of course, believe it that it is your word to us and help us to be aware of what you say and how you say it, of your great skill and wisdom in presenting Bible truth to us. Um, And we thank you both for the divine inspiration of the scripture and for the human uh, being dimension to it. And we pray, Father, that Uh, We would believe you as Abraham did, that our faith would be like his and even stronger, for we have so much more knowledge than he ever did. Bless our time together, please, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So Genesis chapter 14, uh, another event from the life of Abraham that, of course, has far greater significance than just the story. God is a great storyteller, and... um, uh, the, the narratives are fascinating, well put together, and always meaningful. But, of course, there's so much going on. And this passage um, is just critical to relating the life of faith. We'll get to that, uh, to understanding the life of faith. The entire 14th chapter is devoted uh, to this subject matter, and so we'll give our attention to it, and we'll look at it. There are three different parts to the story, and so that's how we will uh, consider them. Uh, so let's begin by reading the first 12 verses. Um, they, they are the first part uh, to the story. It came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elassar, Ketolamer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, that these made war with Bera, king of Sodom, with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, the king of Adma, and Shemeber, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, which is Zoar. All these were joined together in the vale of Sidim, which is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Ketolamer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. And in the fourteenth year came Ketolamer, and the kings that were with him, and smote the Rephaims in Ashtaroth, Ashtaroth Canium, and the Zuzims in Ham, and the Emims in Shabbath Kiriam. 
Kiriathim, and the Horites in their Mount Seir unto El Paran, which is by the wilderness. And they returned and came to En Mishpat, which is Kadesh, and smote all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites that dwelt in Hazazon Tamar. And there went out of the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, the same as Zoar, and they joined battle with them in the vale of Sidim. With Ketalamer the king of Elam and Tidal the king of nations and Amraphel the king of Shinar and Arioch the king of Eliasar, four kings with five. And the vale of Sidim was full of slime pits and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there, and they that remained fled to the mountain. And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals and went their way. And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods, and departed. And there came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite brother of Eschol and brother of Anur. These were confederate with Abram. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, He armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. So there's, oops, I'm sorry, I read too far. Verse, down through verse number 12 is the first part of the story. Um, And so we have this recounting of something that is really not uncommon. Um, It happens in our world today. The part of the question, and I don't want to bog us down in all kinds of academic minutiae, but just what exactly is a nation um, in this particular point in time in history? We think of nations in a very modern kind of way. You know, the United States is a nation, um, three and a half million square miles of territory, 330 million people, um, And so that's a nation, and and we think of large nations. But that kind of nation-building doesn't really emerge until the Middle Ages. And so what we really have are much... I'm not trying to take anything away from the story, but what we really have are probably much smaller groups of people, much smaller realms of influence. But regardless of the size, it is the same old story. We have some powerful people who are wielding influence and power over other people, and they're trying to hang on to that power and consolidate it and use it for their own end to achieve their goals. Right? They are, they are in, this group of kings is enriching itself by subjugating this group of kings. And this group of kings, this confederation of people, decide that they're going to take their chances and go into rebellion. One of the more interesting parts to the story is the way that the narrator, and we assume, of course, that Genesis is written to us humanly by Moses, is the way that Moses provides these periodic geographical updates so that later generations of people, and no doubt in his mind, his people, the Jews, have a better ability to reference the map. Uh, For instance, we see it at the end of verse number 2, the king of Bela, which is Zoar. So in Moses' day, everybody could find Zoar on a map, but nobody could have found Bela on a map. Um, And so, right, same thing you have it in verse number 3. 
They were joined together in the Vale of Sidim. Well, where's that? Well, it's the Salt Sea, or what we would call the Dead Sea. Okay, now we, now we have an idea that even we can understand. And so he's, he's making these references to something that happened prior to the development of the Hebrew nation, and he is referencing them to the people of the Hebrew nation. We see it again in verse number 7. Um, right? Uh, we smote all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites and dwelt in Hazan Tamar. And we see it in verse number 8. Um, the same as Zoar. So we see these same kinds of things. So again, there's the, the story happened long before the development of modern Hebrew nation involving people that are really kind of un- foreign to them. Um, and yet the narrator updates the events of the story so that, again, in his world, the modern reader would be able to make some geographic sense of what's going on. And I would argue that this is because this event has great spiritual significance. Again, folks, it's not just a story. And in fact, folks, one of the things that we want to note is that what is newsworthy is not what is noteworthy in the story. In other words, if it was happening today, the first 12 verses would be what all the major media outlets are focused upon. They would be giving us the history of these nations and the way they related to each other and why this king thought that he should be able to tax this king and what contributed to this king's resistance to the tax revolt and what would enable this king to win a victory that this other king couldn't withstand. Much as we might look at the Russian invasion of Ukraine and think only in terms of geopolitic or any of the numerous wars that are going on or rumors of wars, and look at them through the lens of what is happening in the world. But what is actually happening here is that world events are setting the stage for something of far greater significance. In in fact, folks, the only reason these 12 verses are even in the scripture is because of what they do to set up the following story. So again, I, I think that most of us as Bible readers, you know, we don't misdirect our focus. We're paying attention to Abraham and to Lot and to Melchizedek. But the world would not be paying attention to Abraham, to Lot, and Melchizedek. The world would look at these events really rather flatly, seeing in them only politics and power and money and never ever seeing the hand of God. So one of the things that we want to make sure that we do as we think about our world is to recognize that what is newsworthy is usually not noteworthy. It is not going to come to anything. All right, let's just take a minute and kind of walk through the story, not to insult your intelligence, but in chapter 14 and verse number 1, We have four kings who are in confederation with each other. Some sort of alliance, perhaps some sort of treaty, some agreement to send soldiers and to share in the spoils of war against five kings, chapter 14 and verse number 2. 
And they fight a battle in a large valley that is where the Dead Sea is found, which would be down at the very southern part of the nation of modern-day Israel. Um, you know, again, I'm assuming that you have some familiarity with the geography, but the Jordan River is kind of the eastern border, and it flows down out of the Sea of Galilee, which is fed from mountains in the north all the way down. And <clears throat> then you have it this, so the Sea of Galilee is at the northern part of the nation, and the Dead Sea is at the southern part of the nation, these two large bodies of water. The reason for the battle is given in verse number 4 is because there's been a revolt. Um, this, there's been this kind of political revolt. And we assume that, you know, that there was some imposition of taxation. There had been prior history. Um, <clears throat> and then in verses 5 through 12, the battle itself is described, right? Twelve years these people lived under the burden of this four-king confederation. And in 13 years, they decided that they were going to be done. And uh, probably they just failed to send the tribute. That was the, the nature of their revolt. And so the, the battle is engaged. <clears throat> and what we have then in verses 5 through 7 is a little bit of the history of the trajectory that these kings take. These kings, the, the four king confederation are farther north. And they are working their way down to the south, and they're evidently addressing potential allies as they go, and they're defeating these other nations. And finally then, in verses 8 and 9, the battle is joined. And the five-king confederation, which includes the king of Sodom, is defeated. Uh, The four-king confederation, the, the guys who had been doing the oppressing to begin with, have the better army or the larger army, and they are successful. I do want to make this note here, verse number 10, the veil of Siddim was full of slime pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there, and they that remained fled to the mountain. This does not describe their death, because they are alive later in the story. The word fell can describe laying down, and so what most likely the story is telling you is that these guys found an incredibly unpleasant place to hide, right? They went to the tar pits, um, just, you know, just like being thrown into the briar patch. And uh, so they, they fled to an unpleasant place for safety. And so the four king confederation then in verse 11 and 12 uh, loots Sodom, Verse number 11, they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah. This was pretty much standard warfare methodology uh, for much of human history. You, you went to battle and whatever you could capture was divided up among the, the victorious army, including human beings. And so there's also that, and they take Lot, right? Uh, verse number 12, and they took Lot, Abram's brother's son. Later on in the story, we will note that they took more than Lot. But Lot becomes the catalyst for what happens afterwards. And again, folks, there is a a physical relationship between Abraham and Lot. Abraham is his uncle. But there is a spiritual relationship dynamic between these two men. Both of them are true believers. 
Lot is very worldly-minded. And Abraham is not that worldly-minded. And Lot causes all kinds of difficulties that Abraham has to deal with. And much of Abraham's life, living out his life of faith, is in one way or another dealing with his nephew Lot. They fought over water rights, and now Lot has, Lot has not done anything particularly guilty here, apart from the fact that he pointed himself in the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah, got caught up in this, and we will see later on that his heart lies with Sodom and Gomorrah, as does the heart of his family. So he, he provides this, right? We have these, we have these illustrations, folks. We have, we have a man who is a man of genuine faith, whose faith periodically slips, and, but he, he always, I don't want to say he always writes himself, but God is always gracious to him and recovers him, and he, he returns to a place of spiritual excellence, and we have Lot, um, who just seems to be a man who makes one worldly decision after another. And that is his characteristic in the story. So the first part of the story is verse number 12. Really, we're just being, we're, God is just setting up the stage, right? All of these kings, right? Just like we find so often in the Bible, folks, we have people who are thinking completely in human terms. I'm going to take this guy out. I'm going to get more money. I'm going to make myself a name. I'm going to expand my kingdom. I'm going to do for me. I'm going to do for my deities. And always in the providence of God, they are serving a greater purpose that is a complete mystery to them. They have no clue that they are being used for that end. And that is these nine kings. They are completely oblivious to the fact that a larger drama is being played out than their military conflict. Verses 13 through 16 then are the second part of the story. This is what Abraham does in response to the captivity of his nephew Lot. Verse number 13, there came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eskel, brother of honor, And these were confederate with Abram. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, pursued them unto Dan, divided himself against them. He and his servants by night smote them, pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus, another geographical reference. And he brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot, and the women also, and the people. And this is why we know that there are, of course, more people taken captive than simply Lot. So Abraham has his own confederation, his own loose-knit alliance of people there. And he equips his servants. Um, He's got 318 men that are born in his house. And I just refer you back to Genesis 13, too, that he's very rich. Um, and this is, this is pretty significant wealth, folks, to have. Now, of course, it's a manual world, and you need all kinds of workers. But it's a, it's a pretty substantial operation to have 318 men in your employ. And so Abraham is 
pretty substantial and influential in his own world. And so he arms them. I don't think that it's unreasonable to think that these men have had some form of rudimentary training. It would not be uncommon. Um, uh, <clears throat> right? It's, it's, it's just the world. And, you know, you, you have to be able to fend for yourself and you have to periodically defend yourself. And so it was a world in which men did these kinds of things, learned these kind of skills. And so I, I just think that's the implication of the text. They were, they were not Green Beret by any stretch of the word, but these were men that had some, some idea of what the task was and how to go about it. And he pursued them for 150 miles. This is a long, long journey that these guys take from somewhere in the vicinity of the Dead Sea to somewhere in the vicinity of Syria, Damascus, which is on the left hand of Damascus. <clears throat> um, right, And again, we have, you know, as we're reading these stories, I mean, I don't know that we would necessarily think a lot about this, not that we make a big, would make a big deal out of it, but it's always fascinating to me and to, to note the things that God does tell us versus the thing that God doesn't. Right? Here's a 150-mile-long journey. You know, here's about where it started. Here's about where it ended. Nothing at all of what was involved in 318 men traveling 150 miles. How far did they go in a day? How long did this take? Where did they camp? What did they do for food? Did they forage? Did they buy? Did they take? Who knows? We're never told. Right? All we are told is that Abraham managed to recover all the people and the goods and the women. Again, how big was the battle? We don't know. Was it at night? We don't know. Did anybody get hurt? We're not told. What was the nature of the attack? We're not told. We're just told that it happened, and we get then to the consequences. So that brings us then finally to the third part of the story. All of this being set up really to bring us to verses 17 through 24. Kind of the stage is set um, internationally, and then the implications of it kind of locally, the way that it impacted Abraham. Um, and had it not been for Lot, it probably would have had absolutely no impact on Abraham. But Lot is critical in the story, and that brings us to Abraham's interaction with the king of Sodom. In our introduction to the man, Melchizedek. We've done this before when we've read the story. <clears throat> we're going to read verse number 17. And we're going to jump right down to verse number 21. And we're going to skip over 18, 19, and 20. Just so that we note, folks, that we could easily read the story that way. The story could have easily been written that way. And we would have been none the wiser. Verse 17, And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Ketileomer. He's, of course, on the losing side. He's now cleaned himself up from his hiding spot in the tar pits, and he is ready to present himself in the king. And of the kings that were with him at the valley of Shava, which is the king's dale. Verse 21, And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons, take the goods to thyself. 
And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abram rich. Save only that which the young man have eaten, and the portion of the men which went with me, honor Eskel Mamre, let them take their portion. So, now the reality, folks, is that 18, 19, and 20 are the story, and we will come back to them. All of these events to get us to this place, to introduce us to this critical Bible figure, Melchizedek. So Abram returns with Lot and all of the other people that had been taken captive and the goods that had been taken. Again, folks, no explanation how five kings couldn't stop four kings from doing this. No explanation for how 318 men successfully recovered it, just treated as fact. The king of Sodom, verse number 21, tells Abram, just keep all the stuff. I will take the people back. They are citizens of my kingdom. And again, this is not uncommon in and of itself because pillaging is the rightful wage for this kind of activity. Right? You go on these war these raids and you recover goods and or steal goods and this is how you get your wealth. Abraham in verses twenty two through twenty four, unlike Lot, unlike Lot, repudiates any relationship with Sodom whatsoever. Abraham wants nothing to do with Sodom. Abram said, verse 22, to Sodom, I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, yours. Why is this? so that you may not say, I have made Abraham rich. And then there is, of course, the obvious disclaimer, verse 24. Well, the guys have eaten some of the stuff. And those men who were my confederates that went with me, they're on their own as to what they want. But as for me personally, I repudiate and reject anything that comes from Sodom. So again, we have two men who are physically related, two men who are spiritually related, in two completely different ways of operating in the world. Lot loves Sodom. Abraham wants nothing to do with Sodom. Right? So before we turn our attention then to verses 18 through 20, let's just, or as as part of, right, what do we do with this story? How do we view it through our lenses? And of course, we have a lot more information about the significance of this story than Abraham ever did. 
Well, let's begin in something that I've already mentioned. <clears throat> Reading a story like this, folks, should help us to have the proper focus on world events. World events are not just about what country is invading what country and what policies are being passed or not passed or enforced or not enforced. They're all reflection of spiritual dimensions. Now, we, we have to be very careful, right, you know, about reading too much. I don't want to say... I think, we should, I think we should properly understand that they are all part of a larger spiritual picture. I think we should be very careful about find, trying to find particularly people that are inclined to try and find signs of the times as some kind of evidences um, because I don't think that those signs of the times are for us. Um, I think those are for people living in the tribulation, not for us per se with, with, the, with the general disclaimer that look there's going to be wars and rumors of wars and that's just the way the world is going to operate and so don't get all upset about that so <clears throat> right but God used this war that involved all of these men and all of these armies for their own selfish purposes God used it to bring about a spiritual lesson Right. So secondly, <clears throat> the story helps us to have a good focus on the perspective of the life of faith. Lot's choices were the same as Abraham's choices. Lot chose Sodom. Lot chose the world. He has always identified with Sodom and Gomorrah. He turned his face toward it. He moved toward it. And when he finally was compelled to leave it, he left it sorrowfully. He didn't want to go. Abraham, on the other hand, had the same choices, God or Sodom. And he completely rejected any association with Sodom. <clears throat> and at this point in the story, none of the other kings in confederation are even mentioned. All of our attention is turned to Sodom. And we know that, folks, because God's attention is turned to Sodom. And God's attention is turned to Sodom for a very sobering reason, because of the sin of Sodom. Not because of the size or the power or the influence, but because of its sin. It also helps Focus our perspective on how one accesses God. Let's look at verses 18 through 20. Right? We have all of these people that we've been introduced to at this particular point in time in the story. Four kings and then five kings and Abraham and his confederacy. And now there is this new character, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. And he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. So here is a perspective on access 
to God. We know from the Bible, we saw it a number of times in the book of Romans and in the book of Galatians, that Abraham is the template of faith. That when God wants to talk to us about faith, he frequently talks to us about Abraham. You want to know what it is to live a life of faith? Go look at Abraham. Look at Abraham's belief. Melchizedek is the template for how Abraham accesses God. And we know that Abram has built an altar and he has called upon the name of the Lord and we know that God will appear to Abram in a way that he will never appear to us. Well, I don't want to say, let me back up. I don't want to say never. In this life, he will not appear to us. He will not speak to us audibly or through a vision. He just doesn't do that anymore. <clears throat> what he has to say now is recorded in the Bible. But Melchizedek then becomes the template, and we will see this, of course, in the New Testament, for how a person gets to God. What, what has to happen for a mortal being to get to the Lord? If you look at verse number 18, Abraham brought bread and wine. We just, I just want to pause there, folks, and point out to you that in the other references to Melchizedek, and there are not very many, virtually every dimension to the story is repeated with this exception, bread and wine. And what is significant about that, folks, is that the bread and wine then do not represent anything. They're simply Melchizedek showing up with something to eat and something to drink. They do not become symbolic of, for instance, Lord's Supper elements. They have no spiritual significance. They are not repeated in the New Testament story. They have, for those of you with liturgical backgrounds, they have no sacramental value. He is the priest of the Most High God. And you probably are aware, folks, that there are two trains of thought on who Melchizedek is. Right? One is that he is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ, or the other is that he is some representation of Jesus Christ. I think he's the representation. I don't think he is the Old Testament <clears throat> appearance. He pronounces blessing upon Abraham through the Most High God. So Abraham, you are blessed by the Most High God. Melchizedek becomes the mediator of that blessing. And then we have, folks, I had said that we have no record of how 318 men were unable to do what four armies could do. But actually, we do have a record of it. And the record is found in verse number 20. Blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. God fought on behalf of Abraham in a way he did not fight on behalf of five kings against four. God is the real victor in the story. 
And Abraham responds by paying to Melchizedek a tithe of everything. Which I, I would assume to be that he gave to Melchizedek a tenth of the value of the goods that had been recovered from his conquest, although he kept none of those goods for himself. So that, if we were just looking at it being tabulated on a piece of paper, now I'm not saying I'm right, I'm just saying this would be the way that I would understand the story. If you were just looking at the math, Abraham came out deficient 10%. If the goods were worth, for the sake of illustration, a million dollars, Abraham tithes to Melchizedek a tenth of the million dollars, $100,000. But he returns all million dollars to the king of Sodom. That seems to be what the story is telling us. So that financially it ends up being a little bit of a financial loss to Abraham. Now, a possibility is is that he gave Melchizedek the tenth and gave the king of Sodom the 90%. That's entirely possible. But the story doesn't really seem to read that way. So... Let's just jump way ahead, folks, to the book of Hebrews and just look at it very, very quickly. Because here is the great significance of Melchizedek. Right? We have, right, we just have three references to Melchizedek in the Bible. We've just read the first one in Genesis 14. This mystery man who shows up apparently out of nowhere, who is God's priest, who pronounces blessing upon Abraham, who pronounces blessing upon God, who receives an offering from Abraham, and who speaks on God's behalf. He is found again in Psalm 110. where the future Messiah is told to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. This rather mysterious priest. And the most explanation we have of Melchizedek is found in the book of Hebrews. If you'll look at verse number 19 of chapter 6, which hope we have, Hebrews, I'm sorry, Hebrews 6, 19, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which entereth into, which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made and high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, 
who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. By the way, clarifying any misconception from Genesis 14 that Melchizedek gave the tithe to Abraham. Don't read it that way. Abraham gave the tithe to Melchizedek, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, or in the Hebrew, Shalom, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now, right there, let me just talk about the academic portion for a minute. Right there, folks, is where some reason find him to be an appearance of Jesus Christ rather than a representative of Jesus Christ. But I think all that's being argued there is that in a book where everybody who is anybody gets a genealogy, Melchizedek gets none. You don't know where he came from. You don't know where his parents were. You don't know when he was born. And you don't know when he died. And you know that about almost everybody else in the book of Genesis. But here is this towering figure who appears out of nowhere and is gone as quickly as he came because, back to Hebrews 6, or Hebrews chapter 7, verse number 3, but made like unto the Son of God abideth the priest continually. So that if, this would be my argument and my understanding, so that if Melchizedek really were an Old Testament appearance of Christ, this would be the time to announce it. Without, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, because he was the son. But that's not what the text says. But was made like unto the son, a representative of the son, abideth the priest continually. Because he has presented to us, without beginning, without end, without parents, there is this ongoing quality to the priesthood of Melchizedek that is representative of the work of Christ. Verse number four, now consider how great this man was. This mystery man that we know nothing about Consider how great he was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And verily they that are of the sons of Levi, who received the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham, and blessed him that had the promises, and without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. And this becomes then, folks, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10 in the book of Hebrews, which we dealt with not terribly long ago. This becomes part of the basis of explaining the superiority of the priesthood of Jesus Christ, that it is, has, that it is similar to the priesthood of the Levites in that they are priests, but completely disconnected from the priesthood of the Levites. So that no one should have ever came to the conclusion 
that anything about the Levitical system could bring lasting salvation. That's where he's going with it. How could the Jews come to the place in believing that there could be salvation by the law when their whole system wasn't even connected to the right priest? They should have never thought that, and neither should anyone else. All right, I'm going to stop there. It's quarter to 11. Uh, Happy to talk with you about who Melchizedek may or may not have been, but... uh, or anything else privately, we'll be back at 11 o'clock.